your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. We, uh, we really concentrated very hard on traveling around. Like, you know, we, we probably take breakfast to every medical facility in town at least once a year. Yep. Just, you know, here at Bagels and we're here and we, we even send them a calendar on a, for an on-call. We have an on-call calendar and they know who to call for emergencies. Nice. That's a good plan. So, you know, it's not just kind of a haphazard thing. There's actually, they know who to call. So right. today that, and since we're closed, it's not unusual for us to get about 10 to 12 emergencies a day um, normally. Well, that's what it's like when you're in a town like you're in, you know, where it's... Well, how many people are in your town? Oh, um, we're we're just north of 20,000 people. But the difference with Tifton, Tifton is a really weird small town. We've got four ophthalmologists in Tifton. Um, that, that is unusual. Yeah, and we've got... I remember you talking about your, op, your, your retinal specialist that survived COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, the... So right now we've got, we had two retinal specialists in town. Now we've only got uh, heat um, and the, the younger of the two, um, he, he grew up here in Tifton. His folks go to church with me. Um, in fact, I, I was talking to um, Dan, uh, the father, last weekend at a Sunday school thing we were doing. And he said that Russ and, and Kathleen, Kathleen's the wife, uh, Russ is the retinal specialist. Kathleen is a family practice doc, and she took over a clinic here, but they decided to move back to West Virginia to be closer to her family. Um, they're, they are uh, probably getting ready to start competing with the Wolf family on how many children they can have at one time. Um, <laughs> I don't think, I don't know if they're going to make it a nine like Chris, but uh, they're getting, they're getting on up there pretty quickly. And so anyway, the they've moved to West Virginia to be a little closer to her mom. Um, but they're actually now very close to where Jim Herman lives. And I okay. need to in touch with Jim to say, Hey, Russ Richardson is up there. He's a phenomenal retinal specialist. You need to talk to him, uh, for the rest of you guys who are in West Virginia. There you go. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, it's, a he's got, a, he had a great practice here in town. Um, not just because he was local, but just because he's a great retinal specialist. I talked with uh, Ryan Powell this morning on the podcast, and then um, he's a good one. I'm not as good as Ryan. Or I don't have uh, eleven locations or however many he's got now. Yeah, actually, he's he's getting ready to add to twelve. Um, so, but what I can't get over is, I mean, the the range of how far apart his practices are. His his too far this practices away from each other, and and his where he spends most of his time is in the dead center, right there in Kansas City, but it is two hours from one practice to the other that's all interstate driving too um so that's a that's a poke that's that's a heck of a situation he's got going there and I, it is. I, I talked to him i said well how do you keep the culture going and he said well it's real simple he said that each one of the dot practices the doctor that, of that practice they kind of 
they, they run that practice. I mean, that's, you know, and, and they're all the, they all were brought there because of the philosophy that I had. And I put them there with that already baked into their DNA pretty much, you know, so that was a really good way of doing things. But, and then, and, you know, some Friday. Our second location, our guy runs it pretty much. If anything, one time he said, you know, you don't really call me that much. I'm like, well, you're doing a good job. So how's it supposed to be? Appreciate that. I said, yeah, I said, do you want me to butt in? He said, no, not really. But I said, well, you know, when we bought that practice that was grossing 330,000, it's already over a million and we're looking at buying land to build. So that's great. I love building buildings, apparently. Well, it's the only way to grow sometimes, you know, got to make space so you can bring some people in there. I think a lot of optometrists across this country limit themselves with their space. Mm-hmm. There is only so much you can do. Yeah. And part of it is when do you know it's time? So and give us the clue on that one. How does it, when is it time? Depending on your area between 400 and here it's been 475, but I would use the number 500 to keep it easy. If you're at $500 a square foot a year and it doesn't seem like you can grow much more and you're busting at the seams, you probably need to expand or move. Yeah. That number has popped up over and over and over again with three or four other doctors that also expanded and moved. And that was just a number I added up. So, you know, so if you're in 4,000 square feet, and you're at uh, 2 million a year and that's all you can do and you can't you just can't seem to grow anymore and it just seems like you're you're running out of space you probably should build or expand it seems like a 500 square foot's pretty uh that just that just seemed to come up over and over and over again it, it was a little over 500 in like an urban area like chicago or something and then like for me it was 475 in a poor right. rural area we had about 475 a square foot a year twice and we couldn't seem to grow anymore and it seemed like we didn't have any space okay. and then each time we built then our two best years of growth were always the first two years we built yeah especially in a small town because a new building just attracts you know everybody wants to see it yeah it's everybody good to see it. yeah everybody wants to see it well um, get the first before we get too far into all the stuff i want to i want to actually get us started Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for them, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings, and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. 
Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight one-day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear one-days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice, not fear of the disease associations with myopia, is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm Ted McElroy. Today, I have a wonderful guest with me uh, that we go, I mean, way back. Uh, he was two years behind me in optometry school. Dear friend of mine, Kurt Steele. Kurt is the uh, owner of the um, Vision Source in Newport, Tennessee, and also another location, which I apologize, I forgot the name of the location, but I'll get that in a minute. He uh, is a 1995 graduate from Southern College of Optometry. He is a former president of the TO at the Tennessee Optometric Association. He was also involved in the uh, Optometric Society in his area, both the East Tennessee and the Smoky Mountain Optometric Society. He was both Young OD of the Year and OD of the Year for TOA. And at one point or another, uh, he somehow uh, was probably the instigator that got um, a good friend of mine and I, Jim Herman, to jump off of a mountain in Jackson, Tennessee, uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, uh, while we were at a SECO Board of Trustees meeting once. Uh, we'll talk about that if we get time. But Kurt, uh, thank you for for taking time to be on the on the podcast today. You're you're supposedly on your day off, but you've been working like a monster all morning long with all these uh, emergency calls you've been dealing with. Yes, thank you. Well, first of all, in the, the second location is in Greenville, Tennessee, and okay. I want to thank you for just always being a great mentor for me, then also just all you do for our profession. I've, I've seen you work very hard for optometry through SECO and through AOA and some other things. I want to thank you for that while we're here. Uh, yeah, and I think the topic today is a little bit about rural optometry, and uh, you know, when I came to this practice, we were grossing, this practice was grossing 300000 a year. Now, the net was 70% amongst two optometrists, so not terrible, but uh, we're going to go over three million this year, and uh, one of the big ways we grew this is we really went out and aggressively pursued the medical community in, in Newport. We're on staff at the hospital. Um, we we actually sent an, an on-call calendar at the first of every month to every medical facility and the hospital in town so they know who to call, and they have our direct cell number. So even though we've been closed today, I've had nine patients from it, whether it's the emergency room or fast pace or summit or um, the family practice center in town. So yeah, we're in Newport, Tennessee. It's a town of 7,500 people. County's got a little over 30,000. It's one of the poorest counties in America. But the, the, those, those are also the places you can really build a very loyal patient base. So there's good and bad, just like everything. But yes, I've had, a, I've had a probable temporal arteritis this morning, two or three foreign bodies. Uh, I think I had a myasthenia gravis. Matter of fact, I'm going to go to the emergency room and visit this patient later. And uh, yeah, it makes for very interesting uh, practice for sure. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think that is lost on a lot of new graduates is they think that, you know, going to some sleepy little community is going to, you know, not really challenge them. And when in fact, um, I would, I would wager that if they go to a big city, 
unless they're really good at one thing, it's going to be a challenging life for them because there's somebody around the corner that is world-class at one of those things that they do really well if they're planning on just doing everything that they learned in school. I agree. The, um, you know, especially being Easter weekend, it's amazing how God was looking out for me, even maybe when I didn't deserve it, maybe we never deserved that, but, um, I actually ended up in Newport through kind of a freak situation, and I don't want to waste time on that whole story, but um, it, uh, I ended up in Newport kind of on a fluke, and it, it's at, you know, and actually at the time it happened, it didn't look like something great. It turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me, um, because yes, rural optometry is much more exciting. Um, there's not an ophthalmologist within 40 miles of us, so I mean, when we approached our ophthalmologist in the mid nineties about being on staff at the hospital, he was like, that's the best idea I ever heard of because for them to see me, I either have to drive 40 minutes or they have to drive 40 minutes. Somebody has to drive 40 minutes and you guys are right there. So he signed off on it. And we've been on staff at that hospital for over 30 years now, but rural optometry is a, a, a much better opportunity as far as very variance of practice. We haven't, we're an extern site for SCO and I've had several, of the uh, students tell me that they see more pathology here than they do at their uh, referral center rotation. They're, you do one at private practice, one at a referral center. And I've had several tell me I saw more pathology or more varied pathology at your office. Then um, also we'll probably get into this later, the real estate opportunity in rural optometry is, is, is uh, I mean, that's kind of my retirement because I've, I've now owned two buildings and probably will own three in the next 15 years and I will have the rental income from those buildings and I can live off that. I can sell the practice and keep the buildings. So yes, there, I, in my opinion, there's, there's a, a much bigger opportunity in rural optometry. And I, and I was just, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good through a fluke circumstance, I ended up in the right practice with the right senior partner. And I can't imagine it could have gone any better anywhere else. Well, I do want to kind of get into the fluke, how you got there by accident. Uh, so how did you get there by, and where did, I mean, did you grow up there in Newport area or did you? No, I, I grew up about five hours from here in a little town called Camden, Tennessee. And I was a West Tennessean my whole life, but I had a cousin play football for UT and did an extern here and came back. And uh, um, I was actually, um, so I was in an ophthalmology practice in Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, the two ophthalmologists were wonderful. And they, uh, they even said, we don't even care what the law is. Uh, you know, I'm a cataract and general ophthalmologist, and I do cataract and retina. You keep us in the surgical suite. You do all the primary care. You, you do whatever you're comfortable with. We just want to do surgery. And, and they, they were good to work with, but they had an office manager who just had this terrible view of optometry. And I was just out of school and didn't know a lot better. And in exchange for the good salary, um, put up with some things. Like she didn't want to call me doctor because the, the ophthalmologists were the doctors and that there should be a differentiation between ophthalmology and optometry. And I know Jeff Foster's rolling over in his grave, even though he knows his story. Um, there, there was one particular day and she was really trying to prove to me she was my boss. Like I'm, I am in charge of you. Um, there was one particular day she asked me to start clocking in with the rest of the staff, and then she denied a vacation, like I turned in a request, I was going to take my first vacation, and it just put denied on there, and I thought, well, surely one of the two ophthalmologists are gone, and she needs me for call. No, she just denied it to deny it, just to kind of prove something to me, and Jeff Foster just happened to call me that day, 
out of the blue. Just I know you got this great job at St. Mary's in Knoxville, but you know, Bill Henry's getting ready to retire. And would you want to come up here? And I said, well, I got two questions. Do I have to clock in? And he said, no. And I said, I want to go to the beach in six weeks. Can I go? And he said, sure. And I said, okay, I'm interested. So I went up and interviewed. I took a pay cut, big pay cut. Matter of fact, half what I was making. Uh, but I just had a good gut feeling. So I went to this practice and it was going, because it was in a small town. It's an hour from anything. And uh, I'd been there a little over a year and I got an offer to go back to Knoxville to the University of Tennessee for double the money. And, uh, but I had been at this practice for a little over a year under the, the, the assumption that I was looking at taking over. And sometimes you do the right thing and God rewards you. Um, it looked better at that time to go back to UT. And I remember telling my wife, you know, there's more important things than money. I can't do it. I had grown to, to love Jeff like a brother and Bill like a dad. Bill Henry was the guy I bought out. And I said, you know, if I leave here, they're probably not going to even find anybody. And I just, I can't do it. I know, it, 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 and she agreed. And to give my wife credit, she had grown to really grown fond of them too. And I said, I, I know it looks better to go back to Knoxville and we're in our 20s and we want to be in a more city atmosphere. Um, but we decided to stay. And I remember also, I just kind of briefly mentioned, you know, by the way, Jeff is a very progressive optometrist. Matter of fact, he was voted optometrist of the decade for the state of Tennessee. And it's, they invented the award because they'd run out of awards to give him. I said, when, when Bill Henry leaves, I think me and Jeff can do some things. And, and I, I think financially this could end up being better. And I had, I had no idea how right I was on that. I was just kind of guessing. But so I stayed here out of loyalty to the two guys that, that kind of got me out of a bad situation. And it turned out to be 10 times better than anything I would have done back in Knoxville working for an ophthalmologist. So um, I stayed for a, a right reason and got rewarded for it. It's gone very well. So you mentioned the population of Newport. I mean, what's the town like? I mean, what's, what's, what you said also, you said it's kind of secluded. I mean, there's not a whole lot around Newport. So, well, it's the kind of the good thing is, is it's secluded, but yet you're four hours from the Atlantic ocean. You're an hour from Knoxville. You're an hour from Asheville, North Carolina. You're an hour, you're an hour from a lot, but you're 30 minutes from nothing. If that makes sense. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. However, um, it's it's a it's a it's got kind of a rough reputation. Like you don't you don't want to come to it is Cock County, C O C K E, Cock County. I always tell people it's Cock A. Uh, French explorer <laughs> founded it, but um, Cock County, Tennessee. It's a thirty thousand. It's one of the poorest counties um, in the state, and one of the poorest counties in America. Our, poor, our per capita income is in the low twenties. And our unemployment usually runs around nine to ten percent. So um, it's got challenges there, but a, a very tight knit community. Um, I, I actually can't imagine being more successful anywhere else. They're you know the kind of people that if they know you're taking care of them, they will take care of you. Um, um, so just a, a lot of mountains. So like there's seven thousand five hundred in the city, but we draw from about thirty five thousand. Lots of little communities in the mountains. It can be. Um, it could be 50 degrees in Newport and all the county schools are out because they like to keep all the schools on the same schedule. And you can be on in Newport and look up in the mountaintops and see half a foot of snow. And so if one school's out, they just let them all out. Um, so just, uh, and you have to have all these little county schools because there's some roads, you know, there's one place called Grassy Fork. It's 15 miles, but it's 45 minutes. You've got one lane roads that 
I mean, you almost rear end yourself on some of these mountainous curves. Right. And they're little single lane gravel roads. And but there's a school up there called Grassy Fork. There's like eight kids per class. There's like 40 kids in the whole school. There's like eight, there's like eight to 10. It's like first and second, third and fourth, fifth and sixth, seventh and eighth. There's four classrooms. And they're always in the top 10 in the state on their test course, year in, year out. So I guess there's an argument for class size when it comes to classrooms. Right. They're always in the top 10 year, every single year. So I guess that, I hope that described the community well. Very, very, uh, lots of wonderful people, uh, lots of churches. Uh, uh, um, but uh, a lot of people have to leave the county to work. Our, and our largest employer, ConAgra, just shut down at the, at the beginning of this year. I was going to ask you what the, what the local industry is. What is the, what is the money source for the majority of the community? You know, and it's one of those, it's a, 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 thank God for the hospital and the county school system and the county and city employees. That's your top three employers. It used to be ConAgra, uh, um, but they shut down. They made ketchup that came in pour bottles and everybody uses squeeze bottles now. Mm -hmm. So they finally just, and, and they either had to bring in the equipment to make squeeze bottles here or just shut it down and consolidate. And they shut down and consolidated. So, so what is, and about how many people, uh, let me ask the first question. How many people did they employ there at ConAgra? Uh, so what does that do to a community of your size when suddenly 2000 jobs are gone? You know, not as much as I thought it would. A lot of people did find other work, but they're having to drive 30, 40 miles, which now with the gas prices, that's going to, that's going to be concerning. Uh, um, it, but yeah, definitely like there for a while, you're busier because your biggest employer is about to close and they all have VSP and they're like, well, I got to get in. So, for, you know, for about six months, it was pretty neat because they were dying to get in. But now that it's shut down, um, you know, luckily with the, you know, and then, you know, and Dr. Foster had this set up long before I got here. Our, we are very highly medical. Um, so that really helped stem that quite a bit. We, we get all the referrals from the MDs in town. Like I said, today we've been closed. I've had nine patients this morning. So it certainly hurts, and, but we're still growing. We, we, so we're bringing on a fourth doctor, as a matter of fact, in a month. So we, you know, you got a large plant that closes down. You're in the poorest community in the country, you basically said. Um, what makes practicing there so great? Oh gosh, that's a great. Well, here number one, I don't know when this when's a good time to bring up stuff, but so I had a senior partner. I've mentioned him a couple of times already, Jeff Foster. Um, I've actually nominated him for the National Optometry Hall of Fame because he's probably the most under underappreciated um, optometrist I've ever known to do what he did for our profession. And number one, he just loved it. He loved being an optometrist. He'd have a day off and call me and say, y'all having trouble with emergencies? I can come in. He's, well, he never married, never had kids, and he didn't really have any family. I was the executor to his will. And, but anyway, he, he loved it, and it was just infectious. So, you know, if he hadn't have been an optometrist, he'd have, been, he'd have loved doing whatever he did. And I think a lot of our attitude and a lot of our happiness, really, if you want to know who's responsible for your happiness, you just need to look in the mirror. It's that simple. I mean, there are people out there digging ditches that are that are loving life and millionaires that are miserable. So um, I don't know if that's a good answer, but I, I, I got to practice optometry with a hero of the profession 
And if he did a lot for me and I owe a lot to him, but probably the, at the top of the list is he loved it and, and he instilled that in me and I love it. But, you know, as far as rural optometry goes, I would just, you know, what I brought before is we're, we're you know, we really get to see a lot of, our cases are varied. One day is not the, I can't remember, remember having two days and thinking this is the same day. It's, uh, you get to see all sorts of pathology and interesting cases. You can specialize in whatever you want to do because you're the only one around. So we, you know, we do scleral lens fits, we do low vision, we do vision therapy. You know, so when the extern comes here, they get to see a little of everything. Of course, we all do different things. Uh, um, I do more of the low vision. Dr. Emily Eisenhower does the vision therapy. Um, and then we all do the pathology and we take turns taking call. And it just, you, your, your day is, it, it's always exciting. I, I, we never have a boring day around here. We have crazy days around here, but we don't have boring days. So how many days are you spending working on guest care and how many days are you doing on practice care? So um, practice care is uh, um, my goal because I do some speaking and I do some lecturing and then the vision source administrator thing. And I try, I try to have a goal of doing a 50, pardon me, 45 days a quarter, which is nine weeks. And so it, it, it's... My, I wish I could get my schedule as, as, as organized as yours. It seems like every week there's a different day I need off. So I just make a good, so I just try to do a quarterly calendar and just make sure I have 45 days in the office. Um, and you'll have to tell me the difference between patient care and guest care. Well, I just, we just call them guests in our practice because that's how we. Oh, refer okay. Guests. Okay. So I do 45 days of guest care and that's actually very, I like that. Um, some 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 quarters I get to do 50 and some quarters I do 40, but I try to make it 180 by the end of the year. And because, um, and you know, we have a budget and we have certain employees and like one of the numbers, like to me, a number I never hear a lot of people talk about is uh, revenue per day. Right. So I know if I average $4,200 a day and you multiply that by 45, you know that you're going to probably bring in that revenue. So if there's a quarter, you're only going to work 40, you better make adjustments in your budget. If there's a quarter, you can work 50, then you can make those adjustments as well. But, you know, always try to just make sure I do uh, 45 days a quarter. So I want to, I want to um, make sure we spend some time also talking about Jeff. Um, you know, two years ago, um, Jeff passed away from, from effects from COVID and Correct. Um, you know, it was, I believe around September, wasn't it? Something that, something that, August, yes, August 28, 2020. Yeah. And, um, I was kind of watching it from afar. Um, there were a number of others that were real close to Jeff that were in the past presidents for SECO. And, um, that was when we, when I first heard about it and, you know, well, first of all, I mean, what was that like, not just for you, but how was it for the practice? What did, how did it, what did it do to the community? What, what kind of impact did it leave by Jeff not being there? Oh, goodness. You may have to talk for another 10 minutes and I may bounce around like crazy. I, I, I had four thoughts throw up fly through my head. Well, you know, first of all, you know, when you're in a small town, everybody at the hospital was a patient of Jeff's yeah. or a patient of mine. I mean, they, they, the local hospital took him making it very seriously. They even brought, we didn't have a bed to prone the patient, you know, to flip them on your stomach. And they, they bought one because of Jeff. 
so he could have every chance he could. Uh, I mean, the community really, really came together. And, um, uh, you know, some of the things I can think of is, so um, I'll never, so he'd had rotator cuff surgery and I'd have to look at a calendar, but like the last Friday of July, he had just come back from rotator cuff surgery, he worked about three or four days and he was going out the back door and I was across the hallway and I just yelled at him, Jeff, how you feeling? He said, maybe it's, I came back from the surgery too quickly, but man, I'm tired. And I'm just going to go, I'm just going to, I'm going to, and this was a Thursday. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I'm going to go home and take off and, uh, and I'm going to take off tomorrow and I'll, and I'll come back uh, Monday. And well, anyway, he called me the next morning and he had lost his smell and taste. And so we kind of knew what was going on. This was, this was on July 23rd and 24th, I think, no, July 30th of uh, 2020. And so when I called him, the when I talked to him the next day, I mean, he was a little overweight and asthmatic. So I was in charge of his care because yeah. he didn't have any family. So he, I was in charge of his advanced care directive. And um, well, anyway, so August 6th, so um, I called him on August 4th or 3rd, it was Monday or Tuesday. And he would, he would say three, he sounded pretty good up to this point. He would say two or three words and go, <sighs> And I remember Emily, Dr. Eisenhower, my junior partner, was in the car with me when we heard. We looked at each other, and we almost knew at that point, like this is not good. Right. So my wife went over there and took him a pulse ox meter, and his pulse ox was sixty-one. You can't let it get to that point. He he, right. he didn't want anybody else to get it. He didn't want anybody in his house. My family doctor begged him for days. So you know, August sixth is when he went on the ventilator, and he was on the ventilator till August twenty-eighth. You know, you get a call, you know, I don't know how many people went through somebody that died from COVID, but you get a call one day and things would look better and they would get your hopes up. And then they would call three hours later and say, you need to shut down the office and get over here. This is it. Yeah. You know, we had to close the office three or four times for everybody to go because this, this could be the end. Mm -hmm. And then he would recover a little again. Um, so that was really tough on everybody and I don't know how we got through it just to be honest with you uh, a lot of prayer and a lot of you know pats on the back but then uh, um, what I did is I put together I hope this is I don't know if this is germane or not but I have I have three MDs that are good friends two of them local that were knew Jeff real well and one that didn't know Jeff at all and they didn't even know it they were my own independent committee because when when you're in advanced care on COVID you get a phone call at 4 a.m to get permission to draw the blood and then you get the report at 7 a.m with the results of the blood work and then you decide whether it's worth continuing or not and on august uh 24th or 5th the doctor that didn't know jeff was the first one to look at me and say you know this isn't going to end well yeah and then the second doctor said the same thing on august 27th that knew jeff pretty well and it went about like you would think the one that was really best friends with jeff that even hunted and fished with him said look there's two numbers here that show a little hope. Let's do a feed. They're wanting to do a feeding tube just to get some nutrition in him. Let's do the feeding tube. And if those numbers don't improve in a day or two, it's, that's probably it. Well, they got much worse within 24 hours. Right. And then that's when that doctor looked at me and said, um, uh, the, best th the worst thing that could happen now is that Jeff survives this because wow. he'll be a vegetable. And Jeff under no uncertain terms looked at me, uh, told me over the phone, 
if you bring me back and I can't be an eye doctor and I can't hunt and fish, I will be very, very mad. And he would look at me every day like, what did you do? Yeah. So that was the day we made the decision to take him off the ventilator. Uh, Jeff was a very humble person. Like I said, he is the most underrated optometrist, I think, in the history of optometry. And I realize I'm saying something pretty heavy there, but I really believe it because he was also the most humble person I've ever known. Like most people, I don't even know his name. And every law that Tennessee ever had, Jeff Foster led the charge. That's why I say he was a voted optometrist of the decade. Um, they just ran out of stuff to give him. He was the legislative chairman here. But he was so humble about it, we didn't realize, not only from our practice, but from a state legislative standpoint, um, the shoes we had to fill. I, I would sit here and I would, somebody would put something on my desk and I would say, what's this? And I, they'd say, I don't know, but you got to do it. And I had no idea Jeff was doing it. Jeff would just do it. He didn't need it. He, you know, I'm one of those people when I do something, I buy t-shirts and say, look what I did. And I'll admit it, I'm a little bit of a glory hog. Jeff was the exact opposite. He didn't want any glory. He didn't want any credit. He did a lot for this practice. And I didn't realize how much till he was gone. My wife will tell you, I've spent a lot of late nights here since he passed, just trying to keep things raveled. And then also our state, you know, I've actually kind of watched our state association get a little unraveled over the last. Matter of fact, I did something here recently, a little bold because of in the kind of in the honor of Jeff that he built, he really, in my opinion, is the, is the backbone of the Tennessee, we're now the Tennessee Association of Optometric Physicians. And I didn't want to see that unravel either. So, um, you know, you just take it day by day when something like that happens. When you have your senior partner and biggest collector, um, just all of a sudden pass away, yeah, it's tough. Um, and it was during COVID, which made it even harder. Well, in some ways it made it harder, in some ways it made it easier because you get your PPP loan and you, yeah, you know, yeah. your your grant and you keep moving. But uh, uh, he just had a great influence on the office. You, I mean, certainly morale dropped, and and you you know we tried to do fun Fridays and do fun things as a family. We would close the office and go bowling together, or we close the office and go do pottery together. We, we, we usually did that once or twice a year. We've done it quarterly since Jeff passed just to try to keep uh, everybody's morale up. But uh, it's been difficult, but uh, my young partners really picked up on things and we got a new associate, Dr. Lindsay Cottle. And maybe we can talk about this too. One of the ways we've attracted and built a rural practice is we don't have associates, we have potential partners. I don't bring in associates. I bring in everybody that comes in this practice as a potential partner. And there's money set aside for that out of their pay and they can choose to use it or not use it. So, so when uh, you say you're setting aside money, I mean, I, without getting into too many specifics, I mean, why is a certain percentage that you're pulling out of their salary and how is that, how does that yes. work? Well, it's not even a percentage. It's basically, I think we just do 500 a week just to keep it easy. But when you come to our practice, um, First of all, they do work for about, I'd say, usually, so the way it's worked is usually an associate's graduating school in May, and you're putting them to work somewhere in June and July. Mm -hmm. So those first six or seven months to January 1st of the following year, we just pay them per day just to make sure we all get along. Starting January 1st of the following year, the potential partner is paid the exact same formula the owners are paid. So when we pay ours, we, we pay them, we pay them on the same formula that the owners are paid. 
but we take out five and we do it on a weekly basis and we put we take out 500 a week so basically the owner's pay goes up 500 a week and the associates pay or potential partners pay goes down 500 a week and you do that for two years mm-hmm. so at the end of two years there's fifty two thousand dollars sitting there now what mickey informed me i should have done and i didn't do but we attracted two very good doctors to kind of a lower income areas he says you should have taken half of that to apply towards buying in and half of it is rent for them working in your office you got nothing for that and i see that but what we did with them is we did all of it so and i had fifty two thousand dollars for what we those did. don't know also just to make sure um Mickey uh, is Mick Kling, uh, oh, but, sorry, but yeah. Kurt and I know him as Mickey because we were in school with him. So that's uh, that's right. Sorry about that. So Mickey said he should, and he, Mickey's probably right. But what I did do is I've got two excellent, and I mean excellent, doctors who are very sharp from both a business and optometry standpoint, willing to wanting to practice in this rural area because I set the purchase price early, so they are not penalized for growing. So basically, I bring them in. I say, here's, here's the contract. Here's what these two practices are worth right now. And so this is your buying. And then we're going to take $52,000 off of that after two years if you want to buy in. So, it's, so the way where I came up with the 500 a week is it seems like the um, 500 a week was kind of the gap between uh, uh, what a partner would make and what a uh, associate would make mm-hmm. so they're making what they're taking home what an associate would take home but we're giving them the difference between that to buy into the practice which is why i can kind of see what mickey said they're basically getting what you're getting over even those two years you should make a little something maybe cut that in half but it's a little too late i've already got the two partners built in and <laughs> actually and i don't regret it because they're both if he did if he had told me that extra twenty six thousand. um would keep those two here, I would have paid it in a heartbeat. They're both excellent. Yeah. So I want to jump back to a little bit on um, things leading into uh, Jeff no longer being with you and after the fact. I mean, what kind of things were you guys prepared for? I mean, it's, and I'm not trying to say we're, you know, we're building our way towards somebody dying in the practice, but what kind of things were you prepared for heading into Jeff's passing? Well, this is probably one advantage I would have over anybody else this could happen to, but I was the executor to Jeff's will. So I wasn't reliant on Jeff's wife or Jeff's cousin or Jeff's brother or sister or, you know, right. I was in charge of his estate. So that was kind of big to begin with. You know, the, 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 the thing that Jeff did, and this was Jeff had this in place once again, Jeff was the... I'm a big picture person. Jeff's a detail person. That's if there's something that has gone awry the last two years, we'll be late on a personal property tax or we'll, he took care of the day-to-day stuff. And I did more of the big picture and growing the practice. We made good partners because both of our talents were and weaknesses matched. Like his weaknesses were my talents and my weaknesses were her talents, Right. his talents. So um, we had key man insurance on each other. So when Jeff passed his estate, and you got to keep up with this because as the practice grows, you got to increase the amount or you Mm -hmm. got a shortcoming. Uh, So check with your life insurance person every two or three years. So we we valued the practice. And then uh, um, Emily and I, uh, Dr. Eisenhower took over Jeff's third. So we went from a third, a third, a third 
to 50-50, and Jeff's estate got the life insurance mm-hmm. check for the value of his half of the practice, or his third of the practice, pardon me. Um, and then as far as real estate goes, what Jeff did in his will is he allowed me to buy any property we own together at over 10 years at 0% interest. Now, where I got a little lucky on that was we had some really good builders in the current facility we're in. We built it for about 600000 less than it was worth when we refinanced it. So on the building part, um, we refinanced the building to a lower interest rate, and there was actually equity in it. So Jeff's estate and I got to split the equity. And I did so good there. What I did is I just turned around to my new partner and said, hey, I've already made some, I've already gotten my equity out of this. If you'll just take over the debt with me, you can own half the building. So my new partner also got a good deal because she got to take over and own half of the building we're in and she didn't have to put up a dime. She just assumed the debt with me. Um, so that was as far as the practice goes. We had a key man life insurance policy on each other. So in the event one of us passed, you know, either the, uh, 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 the person that, I can't think of the word, the, you know, the person that gets your money if you pass away, the, why can't I think of that word? That or your estate gets, yes, that or, you know, gets, gets your half of the estate, your, your practice, and then the partners you have just get to take it over. So the life insurance policy came in very handy. And then, like I said, then uh, we, we, he, he had it in his will what to do if either of us passed away, the other one would just buy out that half. And like I said, he allowed it at 0% over 10 years, but it turns out there was enough equity in this. I didn't have to buy out anything, and I even got some money. That was kind of what he left me in the will, really. Right. Was, um, I got I actually got some equity on the spill. Now, I got more debt because we took out more, you know, the, we, the, I don't mind doing the numbers. I think, you know, I think it cost us $1.8 to to build this, and then it appraised at 2.46. Right. Which means we got two point one i think so yeah so we got 2.1 million and owed 1.8 so i paid off the 1.8 and jeff's estate and i split the 2.1 and then the new partner and i took over the 2.1 debt right so that's the way the building worked so we didn't really have a life insurance policy on the building we just had that in the event something happens to one of us this is what happens yeah so that's what you kind of were prepared for what were you what were you not prepared for? What what did you just not see coming going into something like this? The uh, number one, the details, like what you know, I I you know somebody that travels and speaks and considers himself fairly decent at practice management. I told you all I do everything around here. Oh no, I don't. Uh, I, uh, I, it, the the stuff that he did and didn't even want credit or take credit for it is mind boggling. Uh, number two is seeing his patients in a small rural area a lot. And Jeff grew up here. A lot of his patients are childhood buddies. I to this day, it's it's getting a little less because it's been a year and a half. But I, you know, there for a while, it seemed like three or four days a day, a day. I walk in, the patient's crying before I even, as I'm walking in the exam room, because, you know, I didn't even know if I wanted to come back here. I didn't know if I could come back here. Um, Jeff's been my friend and my eye doctor for 50 years. And this was hard and I almost didn't come. I almost just went somewhere else because I didn't even know if I could face it. 
Uh, so from a purely selfish practice management standpoint, um, I wonder how many people have not come back here um, because of Jeff and like I grew up with Jeff. He's always been my doctor. And um, how, you know, I guess that might be one thing I would think of if I went back and did it differently was how do, and you don't, but you don't think of it. Jeff was like a brother to me. It, it, the business is the farthest thing from your mind, but now that we're a year and a half out, you know, if I could go back, I'd have waited maybe two or three months and then maybe just put like something out like, you know, hey, you know, Dr. Jeff Foster's passed away. He was my mentor. I've got, you know, I've got your records. He's taught me everything I know. Please feel free to come back and I will try to take care of you as well as Jeff did. That's probably it because I, I heard dozens of times something along the lines of I almost didn't even come back because I, I just didn't know if I could do it. And so you wonder how many people didn't come back. So from a pure business standpoint, that might be the one thing I would throw out there is if you have somebody pass away, put something out eventually that says, you know, this is still the same practice, even though this person's not here. You know, I tell you, it's, there's something to be said about this, not even from a standpoint of somebody dying in the practice. It's just a practice in general. I, we're, we're kind of going through and it's not at all to the extreme that what you went through, but I mean, I'm trying to put more and more uh, the guest care in Julia's ball side of the side of the court than it is on mine because I'm trying to run the business side of things a lot more and more. Um, she is really happy being in the exam room and doing that sort of thing. She really doesn't want to do the business side of it at this point. Um, you know, so we're trying to do that more and more. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, my schedule's full. I mean, cause I'm only doing it three and a half days a week and right. I can't tell you how many times somebody will say to us on the phone, well, if I can't see Dr. McElroy, I'm just not going to come see anybody there. Well, that's right. makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, because, you know, Dr. Harrison is Dr. McElroy's eye doctor. I mean, that's, he, you know, he brought her here for a reason. It wasn't just an accident, you know I mean? And so what you're basically saying is that you'd rather go see just anybody as opposed to making sure you can only see Dr. McElroy, right. you know, and, and I guess that's what really kind of floors me when I hear that thing being sold me over and over again by my team. And I said, that just makes no, it just doesn't make any logical sense. Uh, you know, if it's, you know, I, I guess I'm, str I'm struggling with this from a standpoint of how do you, how do you get ahead of this enough, even on a regular situation, not just not that somebody died. It's just that, you know, well, you know, because your schedule is full and you got this really capable yeah. person. How do you take, how do you keep them, keep them going? I think to get ahead of it is the big key. And that's more than just one thing. Like, um, you always tell my, and this, it's sort of the same thing. I always tell my staff, don't, to my team, don't ever let somebody sit for 15 minutes without at least acknowledging it. Because once somebody is mad, it's much harder to get that reversed than to, quote, get ahead of it and keep them from getting mad. So, you know, just every 10 or 15 minutes, somebody should just walk around and say, hey, you know, Dr. Steele's had five emergencies today. He's not forgot you. You know, maybe the same thing on this. We should have had somebody send out a letter, maybe even when somebody called saying, you know, now, you know, Dr. Foster's passed or, you know, Dr. Steele's booked out five weeks, but he picked Dr. Caudill. He picked, you know, Dr. Uh, we got a new doctor starting in a month, Dr. Norris. And they were students here. They're, they're very good. Dr. Steele picked them. And you can see them a lot sooner. 
and uh, um, I guarantee you, you'll get the same care that Dr. Steele would give you. So the older doctor has to swallow their pride a little bit though too, and not try to have it almost put out there like, well, I'm the senior partner and everybody should see me. You know, you got the, the senior doctor's gotta be willing to give up a little too. Because I've seen some practices where the senior doctor doesn't want to give up any of their patients and they're booked out four months and the new doctor's booked out a week and that's not good for either side. Right. So, um, so you know, yeah, like you, I think you had you hit something there, Ted, when you said get ahead of it. You just, you know, looking back once again, I would have gotten ahead of Dr. Foster not being here and what are his patients going to do? So we probably did lose some patients over that. Yeah. Um, one of the other things with your work life is not inside the practice, which you talked about earlier, you're trying to make sure you're in the office about 45 days a month, but you know, there are other days or 45 days a quarter, but there are other days of those 90 days that you're doing other things. How did you get involved in working with industry the way you have? What is that? What does that do for you? What do you do for them? I mean, what, what are the, what are the, what are the metrics? Well, the, um, first of all, once again, and I can't bring him up enough. Um, I was smart enough to ride Jeff Foster's coattails. That's, I was president of Tennessee optometry when I was 31 years old, which would have never happened in a million years if I'd have been in any other practice than this one. My junior partner, Dr. Emily Eisenhower, will be Tennessee president next year. And our other two associates will be president one day too. They just don't know it yet. Because everybody that's been in this practice, and this practice has been around since 1950, every doctor in this practice has been a Tennessee president except one. And it was because he was a legislator. He actually served in the Tennessee House for six terms. So very, very, uh, so, you know, being Tennessee president is how you meet people and then you network. And then, you know, like I said, we had grown, you know, I came into a practice that grossed, um, um, like, you know, I think 280 or 300, somewhere in there, you know, within uh, 10 years, we're at 1.5 million. And so, um, and we did, we were doing the, the start of it, we were doing really well with one day contacts. Our practice is usually around 70% one day, and we're in one of the poorest counties in America. So a contact lens company said, hey, you're 70% one day in this poor area. How do you do it? And I told him a little about it. And he said, well, why don't we pay you to fly around and teach people that? So um, I started lecturing on contacts and then through that. So Mickey Kling, who, you know, we'll mention him again. He, I went to San Diego and did a talk for uh, Cooper, I think. And uh, Mickey came up to me and says, you talk about stuff nobody else talks about. Would you do that for Vision Expo? Because he helps run the EC at Expo. So then I've been, now I've done some CE and now I'm speaking at AOA in Chicago in June. And I spoke at Expo and New York City, and I will speak at Expo West in Vegas, so I do some speaking now, and uh, my new thing is this, and just real quick, long story short, and maybe he'll listen to this, you know, I may should, shouldn't mention his name, but there's a guy that was in practice, and um, I went with Alcon, actually, to his practice several years ago, and um, it was on a Friday at lunch. Not only would I do an evening lecture, I would do like a daytime breakfast or lunch, Right. and so we had lunch. We talked about the corporate thing and here's how you do more one days and uh when the sales rep left he said hey i'll pay for you to go to the airport would you mind sticking around and talking to me for a minute and i said sure he closed his door and he says i've closed for the whole afternoon and i'll even pay for your flight change in a room for you tonight but i'm about to close i opened up this practice four or five years ago i'm working really hard i'm, I'm not taking home hardly anything and i'm just really frustrated and I've, I've heard that you kind of know what you're doing. So if you, 
you don't owe me this, but I would love to pick your brain. So I actually called my wife and I, I stayed, spent the whole rest of the afternoon with him and flew home Saturday morning. Well, a year later, he was on the cover of NBA. So, and I'm, I've never been on the cover of NBA. I've never been on the cover of anything. No. So um, I have a face for radio anyway. But, you know, but it, to this day, when this guy sees me, he, he actually tears up a little and hugs me and says, you know, that was the day that I started being successful. And I, whatever I've done in optometry, that might be my favorite accomplishment. Because there's this guy that had a, about to close my practice that now has two or three locations and is very successful. And I spent half a day with him going, okay, here's something you could do. Maybe here's something you shouldn't do. So having said that, I'm, I think I'm going to, I haven't spoken for anybody in a while. I think I'm going to keep it that way. And I'm looking at probably the fall of this year. I want to actually do my own consulting and kind of specifically target rural practices because that is sort of, um, I mean, that's where I've practiced and where I've succeeded. Matter of fact, I had, I mentioned this just in an email and I had a lady from Chicago email me and say, hey, I may be interested. And I sent her a little questionnaire and as she answered, I just thought, I can't help you at all. It's not even close. You know, your situation in Chicago, Illinois is nothing like my situation in Newport, Tennessee. I mean, there's three or four things, but I'll just email you those. But, you know, a rural practice that may be struggling or maybe having a hard time finding an associate and having a hard time growing, I feel like I can do optometry in general a lot of good in that area. So that's kind of how I want to spend my time in the future. And so when you, when you look at that path, um, what, I, I guess, what is surprising about that path um, that you didn't expect that you would be on that path? So, you know, I guess it's a, a, number one, if you actually, you wouldn't know this to know me, but if you, if on a psychological profile, I'm incredibly introverted. I had to really overcome a, 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 a shyness to do what I do. So probably, yeah, my biggest surprise is if you'd have told me, and when I was coming out of Tom School, hey, one of these days you're going to speak at, at big national conferences and you're going to consider consulting and traveling, I'd have said there's no way. But actually, it turns out I really enjoy it. But I really enjoy, I just have a passion for independently owned optometry places, especially in rural areas. And so um, I guess it's the passion for that that overcomes the introversion that I have. And yes, I, I am introvert. Actually, just one day when I was about 26 years old, decided I was tired of being an introvert. And I just actually made the decision to become extroverted. And I really did a good job of it. <laughs> So uh, maybe this is a painting everything with a, with a broad brush and I apologize if I'm doing that, but what's broken with rural optometry or for that matter, what's broken with private practice optometry? Oh goodness. That's a good question. And there's probably, oh golly, because there's several things. Um, number one is probably and this is going to sound, this is going to sound kind of maybe strange, but, you know, I've always, let me, let me put it this way. This is a good story. I was flying on a plane several years ago with a guy from another small town in Tennessee. And when he found out I was an eye doctor, he asked me to recommend another optometrist. And I said, well, who do you see now? And it was somebody very active in Tennessee optometry, a 
I'm obviously an excellent optometrist. And I said, why do you want to switch? And this guy said, quote, I've been going there 15 years. The carpet's the same. The waiting room chairs are the same. The decor's the same. The equipment's the same. The exam's the same. Nothing is, I've got nothing different in 15 years. And I really think I'm getting outdated care. You go into a lot of rural optometry places right now, and it probably doesn't look a whole heck of a lot different than it did 20 years ago. And I'm not just talking about equipment. I'm even talking about take up your carpet and put in some hardwood floors. Um, change your optical decor. I, I, there's this one office an hour from here, and the wife doesn't want to change either. She said, this is timeless. I said, I just want to say, no, nothing's timeless. It doesn't exist. There are fads. Things change. Things so what I think a big thing of rural optometry is number one, we use being in a small town as an excuse to not invest in our practice. I, I was in one practice and the guy told me, this has been many years ago, I can't afford an OCT and he's got a Hummer in his parking lot. Well, well, yeah, you could afford two OCTs for what you paid for this Hummer and it's gonna grow your practice. So, you know, um, number two, a lot of rural optometrists, like I said, I've gone from 1,500 to 3,600 to 9,500 square feet in a very small town. I think a lot of rural optometrists, they're space limited. In my practice, every time I hit about $475 a square foot a year, I couldn't grow anymore, and it seemed like we were busting at the seams, and we were. So I think a lot of rural optometrists just don't invest in their practices enough and they use being in a small town as an excuse when actually a small town is where you can build some of the biggest practices in this country. So now they got this 30 year old practice they wanna to sell to a, a, a student and they wanna sell it to them for gross or a little more. And the students got $200,000 of debt and they're wanting $700,000 for an office with a B&L Greensboro and an auto refractor. Okay, that's not gonna work on either side. So, um, um, I, I hope I answered that question. That, that in general, I think that's what's wrong with rural optometry. Is you got you got students with two hundred thousand dollars debt, and you've got it's the same story. We've got if you're going to ask for if you're if so that's why we kind of do what we do is I'm not going to wait till I'm sixty five and try to sell half of a three million dollar practice to a student with two hundred thousand dollars in debt. I'm going to sell shares as I go. Mm -hmm. And everybody wins, and that, that came from my dad. My dad was very good at business, and one of the big things he always taught me was if both sides don't win, neither side wins. Amen. I don't think I ever, I think I, my negotiations with people are always quick because I think they can see that. I don't come in just trying to win myself. I really try very hard to say, how are we both going to make money off of this? And if you, if you go in with that approach, things work a lot better. So I've got, I don't have partners, I have, I don't, pardon me, I don't have associates. I have potential partners. I set the price early, pay them like a partner, but take out some money and apply that to that price we set early. And so in two years, what I hope they say is they go, well, my gosh, I can buy into this practice for $400,000. My part's already worth 520. So I'm already got 120,000 of equity and he's given me $52,000 towards it. I'm going to pay $348,000 for this third of this practice that's already worth $520,000. I'm already 180,000 to the good and I'm two years into my career. What I get is I get that chunk of money and my third of the practice is worth almost as much as my half of the practice was. 
And you just kind of keep doing that. And everybody's got skin in the game. Now, what happens if they don't want to buy in in two years? That's fine. Uh, but they don't get any of that money back and the price is reset. It makes a lot of sense, Kurt. It really, truly does, uh, especially when you're looking at it from a point of what's, where's the win for everybody in this? And, right. you know, that's, and so, the, that's the big part. So I think that's how, and we've attracted two excellent optometrists here with that philosophy. And they both came from SCO and Lisa Wade told them it was probably the most fair contract she'd ever seen for a student coming out of school. So, so they're getting paid like an associate. I mean, they're making pretty much what they would make if they went somewhere else. They just got paid as an employee. But we're, we're kind of taking that gap between associate partner and putting that money towards a possible owner. And like I said, Mickey, we're, we're doing all of it. And Mickey said you should have done half of it. And I can see Mickey's point because basically, you know, like I said, I don't care to give that money to these two because they're both excellent. Like I can't imagine not having them already. You know, I, I, I knew this when we were in school together. I know this so much more now. You're one of the most positive people I've ever been around in my life. Um, the way you view things, the way you just sort of come up, approach the things, and it's always, it's always outwardly focused. Uh, there's definitely the secret of your success is the fact that you spend more time worrying about everybody else than you do yourself. And I, I appreciate you also sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Ted. And coming from you, that means a lot. I want to uh, take the last moments we've got and sort of hit you with some rapid fire questions, which I know for you, that's going to be next to impossible, just like, yeah. me. but anyway, I'm going to give it a shot and see how it goes. All right. Uh, what did you disagree with when you were younger that now makes a lot of sense to you? Oh gosh, I'm trying to think. I wish I could think of one thing because now that I'm the old guy in the practice, I, they say stuff and I say something back and I'm like, that's what Jeff used to tell me. And that's what I probably used to sound like. Uh, what did I disagree with? Gosh, what was Jeff was right about so many things, and I can't even I can't think of one. You know, for some reason, the thing that hits me, Jeff always averaged about a hundred dollars more a patient than the rest of us. Always. Like I was about 370. He was always close to 500. And I'd always go to him and say, What's your secret? And he would always say, quote, I just talked to him like an old country doctor. And I'd say, Jeff, no, it's something more than that. And he'd say, Nope. Because I've always been of the opinion that, the, 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 and this is pretty much true, that the fastest way to grow revenue in your practice is to see more people. That's not the most popular sentiment, but it's just a statistical fact. But Jeff brought in what I brought in, seeing one less patient an hour, and that's because he averaged more per patient. And he said, so maybe I should slow down and just talk to him more like an old country doctor. Yeah. Would be my sense. answer. Um, does your life feel too busy or not busy enough right now? too busy, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. 20 something years ago, I was com complaining to a guy named Tommy Bible, who's the local Jefferson Cock County gas guy about all the stuff I had going on and all the Christmas parties I had to go to. And he said, Kurt, you could have nowhere to go. And I quit complaining about being too busy from that moment forward. But very, my wife will tell you I'm way too busy. <laughs> I need to give up some stuff, but. Uh, and this um, coming from someone who's also very busy. Your wife is very busy with yes. her, her yes. life too. 
Um, so if you had the ability to put on some sort of message on the Google title page for the day, what would that message be? For the day? For the day. You know how they always have that little something. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. That's my favorite quote. My favorite non-biblical quote. I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but. No, I mean. So many people, I, I just, and I'm not a whiner. I hate whining. I, I, I can barely stand getting on some of these OD Facebook things and just, you know, if, if dealing with IMED is your biggest cross to bear, you, you really have got it pretty good. That's, you know, if that, if that, if that's the bane of your existence, you, you, you know, look back up and really take a look at your life. It's pretty, it's pretty special. Right. Um, and, uh, you, you know, and that sort of falls in the life is, you know, my wife actually will get mad at me sometimes because I don't get upset. I, I mean, you can either fix it or forget it. Life is 10% what happens, 90% how you, how you respond is by far the biggest determinant of almost anything that happens in your life is outcome. And even some of the worst situations that you may find yourself in that you think are terrible has an opportunity in it. You just have to look for it. 